You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. Welcome to another episode of Half Hour with Jeff and Richie, the podcast where we deeply dive into the shows we see. This week, we're thrilled to discuss the new Broadway revival of Merrily We Roll Along. Curious about our takes on Sondheim's score and the reverse storytelling? Stick with us for the next 30 minutes. I'm Jeff, a music industry producer and manager. And I'm Richie, a theater director and producer. Today, we're rolling back the years with Merrily We Roll Along. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Half hour. Welcome back, everyone. Before we dive in, remember our discussion is full of spoilers. So if you haven't seen this show yet and prefer to go in fresh, see it at the Hudson Theater and then come back for our full breakdown. Today's episode features focuses on the Broadway revival of Merrily We Roll Along, the Stephen Sondheim George Firth musical that's famously told in reverse. With Maria Friedman's acclaimed direction, the show has captivated audiences, especially with standout performances from Daniel Radcliffe, Jonathan Groff, and Lindsay Menton. And we just like to say, when we saw this, we did not see Lindsay Mendez. We had her understudy on. I hope I'm saying her name correct. Shurs Alitaha. I hope I'm saying that correct. She was wonderful. And she was in for Lindsay. Also, just wanted to um, let you all know, the show also stars Crystal Joy Brown, Katie Rose Clark. We have choreography by Tim Jackson. And as I said earlier, direction by Maria Friedman playing at the Hudson Theater in New York City until, I believe, July 2024 is when it's currently scheduled to end. So. Wow. Yes, let's go into this. <laughs> yes, we're going to give the quick little rundown, though. Merrily is about three friends navigating their lives and careers in show business. But what's unique is that we start at the end of the story and move backward to see how they got there. It's a poignant look at how ambitions and choices shape friendships over time, which I think that's a great about section for this show, because let's get right into the plot and our thoughts on this show. How do you think that they did with this 2023 revival of Merrily We Roll Along? Well, I like to remind a lot of people that this is actually based on a play. There was a play version of this, Merrily We Roll Along, uh, with same title, same thing. It was just a play that set, started, and then moved its way backwards. So I don't want to steal the George Firth, Stephen Sondheim Thunder, because obviously created this wonderful musical out of it. But the concept is based on the play. It's a famous play. Like a lot of people have read it. It hasn't really been on Broadway since I want to say the 30s or 40s. I think it was when I was on Broadway last. But this merrily is set in a different later time, the 60s, the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, right? Um, mm-hmm. Just diff- shifted in time. Um, so it actually would be really interesting to see this show done in a modern time, like starting in the 2020s, maybe and moving backwards. You know, could, could constantly keep doing that, right? Maybe but, they'll do that for uh, the movie. The next, which oh, maybe they, yeah, they are doing. There's a movie. a movie version of this coming along. Yeah, which is taking the 20 years to film purposefully because of the the 20 years frame. So, <laughs> um, so I I I'm fascinated with this uh, plot. I I'm, I'm I first of all I will say I loved everything about this. This is 
the first Broadway revival, there's been multiple off-Broadway and City Center and multiple reincarnations of this, but this totally works in this revival. I think what Maria Friedman has done with the direction is brilliant. I think the mm-hmm. acting is wonderful. And I, I will never understand when people long ago said it was ahead of its time or that people said they were confused or that the creative teams long ago and how Princeton long ago said people were confused or he was worried people would be confused. To me, it's like crystal clear that we move backwards because they say like 1973, 1972, 1970, like they, the narrators or the ensemble literally say it. And like, yeah. it's not extremely challenging to follow. So I don't know. If it is, I'm sorry, maybe you need to read up on it before going. I don't know, because I, I don't even know much well, about this going and I kind of totally understood what was happening the whole time. I don't know. Well, this, I did. Well, this is now, we've watched the documentary on this. and the There is a documentary theme. about There's a, the original. The, yes, we watched the documentary about the original and the making of this musical with Sondheim and Hal Prince and just how, like, messy it was like we they didn't know how to direct it the original and the original was in 1981 Mm -hmm. so they didn't know what to do here and it was kind of like gut-wrenching watching them go through this too because i feel like it's like the first time you really or the first time that i personally really sat and saw the creative process in going to a show and obviously you see things with like a chorus line and they have a similar documentary out there on how that was created and casting that show. And for me, and then we saw, I we didn't, when was the uh, off-Broadway revival that we saw? I want to say it was ago. a few years, about maybe 2018, 2019, somewhere around there, I want to say. And I think Roundabout did it, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it was great, you know, because mm-hmm. me seeing this show for the first time and like really starting to get into Sondheim's catalog, for me, this plot easily became like my favorite Sondheim show. Really? A bold statement. Yes. (laughs) Because I find this piece to be so creative. And obviously it's like inspired by the play. But to see this and for him to still write the music and lyrics that he does for this show in reverse, I think it's like even more challenging for someone to kind of like, he's writing music of anger because... You know, we're following a, a group of three friends who at one point in their life, at the very end of the show, we find out that that's how they meet and become friends and they're happy. But we're seeing it in reverse. So he has to write his angry music in the beginning of the show. He has to write the the, the highest pieces that most people write for the end of the show. He has to write them for the beginning of the show. And I just think it's so cool because how many times... And I think that this might be a big reason why people don't really like this show. It's that how often do friendships like this exist? And how often do the choices in your life really kind of affect that friendship? So it's just like... And And I think what was difficult about the original production was they used teenagers and young adults. And then they old played them when they were in their 30s and 40s. And then it ended with them young. So right off the bat, this revival in 2023 seems to have worked so well because we're using all people generally of the same age range in the 30s and 40s. So it's yeah. it's just adult professional actors, not other than Frank Jr., the little boy, of course. There's there's all these actors that are of age, uh, not teenagers or young, young adults, right? 
So then I remember hearing the original, they were like, let's put them all in t-shirts with their name on it because everyone's playing. And then let's have bleachers and lockers because they're in school. Like there was so much going on that I remember going to intermission at this revival. We just saw Jeff and saying to you like, it's just tell the story. Just Just use the ensemble to narrate it and play the multiple supporting roles when you need a waiter, when you need a friend at the piano, when you need a this, when you need that. And just tell the story. It's simplified but, in this revival that we don't need bells and whistles. We don't need to, like I always say on this podcast, beat over the head the, the message or like spell it out to the audience or stupefy the audience even more. No, we just need to just tell the story. And I think what Maria Friedman did really well here is she just looked at the story and said, there's wonderful music. The script is written really well. It's written cohesively. There's the right song in the right place. Just tell the story. Don't give me a million projections and a million different well, crazy things. It let, just was let, beautiful well, to Well, let tell. me stop you first before you get too far into that. What, why do you feel like they couldn't tell the story originally? I think because maybe in the 80s when theater was doing this, like, let's drop chandeliers and let's put turntables on stage and let's be the next big thing. Mm-hmm. Maybe Stephen Sondheim and Alperts were trying to, like, do something wild with this reverse storytelling in a different exotic way or maybe in a different uh, avant-garde way by putting young people in roles of this whole young cast or putting them with t-shirts with their names on them or trying something really edgy and different whereas i feel like then i'm watching this revival and i'm saying myself it's just a story i don't need all these different ways of telling it just tell it and i think with that what Maria has done here and what Jonathan and Daniel and Lindsay have done here is they trusted their audience to just follow along, even the ensemble. Okay, but that's what I'm saying. With this piece itself, the story is already created enough that you don't need the bells and whistles right. in a piece like this. Mm-hmm. And where I'm going to highlight something that Maria Friedman is doing here is have fun with the ensemble. There. Because this has every part of being like the three main characters are the shining stars in this whole thing. But she took a a, a great leap here in using that ensemble to really help tell the story as well. With amazing scene changes during the some of the most amazing music and lyrics by Sondheim. It just worked in that way. So but because we're doing this in reverse, the story doesn't need anything else. It's already kind of too tricky for the, you know, average theater goer to follow because they have to focus on that itself. So don't throw us around by like putting kids in there who, where it wouldn't make sense or just or changing the actors. Find actors that can play 20 years worth of and I the think same that, role. and when you mentioned things like set and lighting, like it just worked so well. If pieces came on and off. It was kind of this like unit, like house apartment, but we knew that we were in multiple different houses and apartments throughout different time periods. The costume design was brilliant and beautiful because the 50s clothing was different than the 60s, different than the 70s. That clothing changed quite a bit during that time. And they highlighted that well. And I just think overall, to see a successful revival of this, that... You know, we saw we know the original Chicago wasn't a very successful show, and that revival now is so much more successful. This does sometimes happen. And it's nice to, and what's what's actually sad is that it was the last collaboration for the most part, I believe, between Hal Prince and Stephen Sondheim in the 80s when this kind of fell apart. And unfortunately, the the, the show within the show here is these friendships falling apart. 
And that's why when I think about this, I say in the beginning, it's really sad. I actually think the beginning's really sad and the end's really sad. And I, and they're both poignant in their own ways. But when you're in the beginning and there's arrogance and there's one liner nastiness and people are, are being rude and, and you're like, whoa, we're starting the show with this and how sad. And then you get to the end and there's these like bright eyed and bushy tailed young kids like coming to the city. And I'm like literally crying. I'm just like so sad for them. I just find the ending of the show, we can get to the ending in a second because there's so many other things to talk about, but I just think the ending is really beautiful, but also really sad. We'll be right back. Welcome back. But that gets into the whole point of this. It's like, they build that for you to be sad. Mm -hmm. Because you're sad in the beginning because you know the friendships are ending and you have to watch them early on, but you then have to rewatch the whole story on how they got to their friendship ending. So you're even more sad because when you see them so young and hungry and happy and like they're just so ready to be like the three best friends, when all of the challenges happen in this show, it's like, oh, that's why it hits you so hard. And I think it hits people like us harder because when you have friendships in your life that sometimes dwindle like this and you create these relationships, you always go back to that question on how did it happen? How did it get here? Why did it end? And, and when you look at these three leads and you see Mary and Charlie and Frank and you realize, oh, they're all so different, but they all, Charlie and Mary kind of stay friends throughout most of it. It's really Jonathan Groff. And we're going to, I want to talk a little bit now just about some cast and some standout performances here. The three of them are working so hard, but it re- Jonathan really carries the show. To me, Jonathan Groff is a major standout. It's a major uh, feather in his cap of performances for me and out of the many things I've seen him do on film and on stage. And I think he's really grown here. I also did really like Daniel Radcliffe. I did like Lindsay's understudy. Uh, They were wonderful. But Jonathan, to me, is holding this together. And I'm seeing that character is tough, man, right? It's just really tough. For Jonathan, I think for Jonathan, it really is a role that is slightly different for him, not fully, because it's a little bit of Jonathan doing Jonathan up on that stage. But the difference here, I think, and why his performance is really standing out is that he is always the nice guy. And here in this show, he has the nice guy look and he has the nice guy appeal. But deep down inside, he hurts so many people throughout this show. And he's so in love with his career that nothing is going to stop it. And and he, in a way, I think what's fascinating about his character is you could argue that he changes the most and you could also argue that he changes the least, depending on the way you look at it, which is why I think a fantastic costume design is that he, in, unless I'm uh, mistaken, I think he stays in a white button-down shirt and black pants the whole show give or take the style of the shirt. He is a constant black and white. It, it, it while well, everyone else changes costumes throughout 20 years. He, I, cause I remember getting towards the end of the show and he's like writing the, at the piano in the early days. I'm like, why is he on the white button down shirt still? And then at the end when they're stargazing and they're up in the middle of the night and Daniel's come, character comes in and Mary comes in and they're in their pajamas. I'm like, why is he not in his pajamas? And I'm like, because they kept him in this steady white and black clean cut look that kind of is timeless, a white shirt and black pants. 
And that it does kind of highlight in a way, I think that from a directorial lens and a costume design lens, that he didn't really change. And maybe everyone else thought he did because he was career driven from the start. He just unfortunately hurt people along the way. And I'm not justifying his what he does with his marriages and his kids and his friends. I'm just saying he did in a way change and he did in a way not change. Which I think is a good topic to discuss in more detail because I always look at that with many people in general and like obviously this is like to kind of showcase something like that the words when you say to someone oh you changed what does that mean well it means did the person think that they changed or did they really change or both right there's no true answer to that yeah because someone feels like they could be living their authentic life. And I think what's interesting with Jonathan's character, uh, Frank, he doesn't change. If you study him and watch him early on, he's obsessed with being famous, even in the last scene, which is really the first scene of them meeting. He wants it. He craves it. Which is why I think it ends with the stars illuminating the house, which I thought was a brilliant moment, because he was a star dreamer from the start and he knew the stars was where he would be he would be a star and he is a star at the beginning of the show and And the stars also probably also represent a little bit of like all of the people that you will meet will help you kind of and and you are and the right and the choreo staging of the act one finale when he's like go on a cruise get out of town go relax and you see dan uh, um charlie and mary fighting through people just to get to the end of to wave to him as he goes on the boat and they're fighting and they're fighting to get to the front and then like blackout end of act one. Ah, I love that. And then as he's left alone at the very end of the show, it shows that he kind of was alone, even though he had a child and wives and friends, he was still felt alone because he had to, well, they, they, there's a famous saying, what what is the famous saying? It's very lonely at the top. They always say, if you make it, you know, and I think they're writing a line somewhere where he says, it's not as lonely as the top, you know, some, something about that. You know, his character is fascinating to me. And I think Jonathan was really, really wonderful to play that. In addition to, I loved Crystal Joy Brown. I loved her act two opener belt number. I loved her character, how transformative she was throughout of course. the piece. And, and Katie Rose Clark too. She sings Not a Day Goes By, which is maybe one of my top five Sondheim ballads. I love that song so much. Um, to see these other supporting roles, really, really wonderful, let alone the ensemble and what the ensembles do. I loved watching some of the ensemble moments in there. I just thought the whole cast was wonderful. Everyone stood out to me and there was not a weak link anywhere to be had. Yeah, Crystal Joy Brown really kind of is at the top in here for me as well, because she actually both characters uh, Gussie Car- uh, Carnegie and Beth Shepard they really they're not in the show a ton but they're in the show enough where they both have moments of they have to show different emotion and again there i feel like the two characters like when she sings not a day goes by the first time it is sad and it is gut wrenching and then not a day goes by is so different when she First, like, I don't know how to say it, which she it, sings at the second at time the wedding. at the wedding because it means something so different. And, how, and when and when Mary is singing it, sitting there next to her, looking right. at Frank and that whole longing that she has for him, you know? which is like 
probably why it's one of your favorite songs because like look at how much that one song can have so many different meanings throughout the course of life yeah yeah and how does that really affect you and i think what's cool with gussie is like you watch her whole arc in reverse as well very differently but she has her own music of anger and like happiness and stardom and fame and you know it's so interesting because when you see her later in the party when they first meet when um frank first meets her she's like the top and then it's so interesting because like later in the show or earlier in the show you you learn about like oh okay well frank does her dirty like he does everyone else Mm -hmm. and she's just angry but now frank's at the top and like where is she going yeah and, uh, and, and, and it's so it, that's why like everyone's always like to me like why is that your favorite song on show it's the show that makes you think so much yeah it does it makes you work smart as an audience and and follow along and see how things happened and how they kind of in a way all become slightly happier with each other as yeah. we move further further along and that kind of goes into some of these music and lyrics a little bit There are standout Sondheim songs here in this show. I know I mentioned Not a Day Goes By. I like um, Our Time. I love the way that ends Act 2. I also love Old Friends because they sing that in this really vaudevillian, old, campy, musical theater way, which I think highlights the fact that this song is timeless because their Mm -hmm. friendship is timeless-ish, right? And the song highlights, it's like an upbeat, hey, old, it's something that you could sing for a hundred years and it would sound like an old song. And then they say, who's like us, damn few. But in other words, to show how unique their friendship is, but how many other issues do they have with other friends? It, it's, it, there's so much to the lyric and I love old friends. I love that song. I think it's a really well-written song. Yeah, because so many times it was for them to kind of get out of the situation they were in and to remind them that they are friends. Mm. And until they weren't. And, and to see that Charlie's nowhere to be found at the beginning of the show, because they they ended that friendship long ago, yeah. even though they did probably shows together and everything. And then Mary is so embar- embarrassed by how she behaved because of that friendship, with trying to keep up with him. It's so sad. The whole thing, the music and lyrics think, do really help well, the storytelling a lot. And I think that's like one of the sometimes like greatest things is he really writes a cohesive score. You know, when we have all of these transitions and the transition songs just keep bringing in that theme, it just works. You know, it helps you remember as well. Like, oh, okay, it's the same theme over and over again. It's repetitive. It's what we talk about in the pop space of like what should be in a musical. And I think Sondheim really knew how to blend that pop repetitive style of then also turning it into a theatrical score, you know? Sure. Sure. And I also feel like there's enough ensemble. There's enough ballad. There's enough uptempo. There's enough. This is a little bit of everything. And, and it's beautiful. I, and I, I love that it's getting this fresh breath breath of fresh air you know all these years later and i i see it's it's selling so well financially it's doing so i hope it does really well at the tony awards this year and i say to myself what would help princess steven sondheim think all these years later uh, to see this show as successful as it is 
Um, well, I would, I would, I do want to kind of talk about that in general of like the marketing and the overall brand of this show was done so smart because this had an out of town in London, right? What's this? Had? I believe it was off Broadway. Last year off was off Broadway. Yeah. It might have been in London, but I definitely know last year was off Broadway. I don't know if it was with the same actors in London, but I feel like she first directed a version of Mar- maybe Mario, uh, did a production of this in the west end then they came over here and did the off-broadway production so from a marketing standpoint what this show is doing is so smart because they built the hype for this show because of the off-broadway sold out run of this and creating that demand of wanting to see daniel radcliffe wanting to see jonathan groff wanting to see lindy lindsey mendez it just made so much sense for them to say oh okay we have a huge demand for this show let's go to a Broadway house. And then obviously the Hudson Theater, perfect. The Hudson Theater is doing everything right, I think, right now with the overall experience of walking into that theater. It's probably one of my favorite theaters to walk in. Beautiful. It's it an old theater, too. Yeah, it has the perfect blend of nostalgia and, but like class in there, you know, with uh, people probably look at this so silly, but like the glassware with the drinks. Yeah. It's it, cute. And it's like, it brings experience. back that whole like, oh, it's a night out at the theater and this is the perfect show to kind of be there right now. And it just works. And their branding is just great. I love it. And it's interesting because I know some people will say, oh, every, what are we going to have every Sondheim show come back down to Broadway because like he passed away. So now every show and I'm like, well, we're we're really doing well here with it because I mean, sweet, I People forget Stephen Sondheim was involved in the Into the Woods revival before he died, and he was just starting to get involved in the rehearsals of Sweeney before he died. There was he was they were getting these shows ready before he they even knew he passed. So it's not like this is all coming out of nowhere. But yes, we are seeing the resurgence of the Sondheim 2.0 all these years later with these shows. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that because company uh, Sweeney Todd. Um, Merrily Roll Along, Into the Woods. There's also, we had a little night music a few years back, Follies a few years back. And there's so many. And Sun I, in the Park with George. Sun in the Park with George had come back Which recently. I think, didn't that reopen the Hudson? It might have, yeah. Yeah. So I feel like it's, it's, a, it's good storytelling. It's good writing. We even had West Side Story come back recently. And, and Gypsy always comes back. I feel like we'll get that again soon. Assassins right. off Broadway a couple years ago we saw. Who's ever listening? Can we get a revival of Follies, please? Thanks. Yes, love that show. <laughs> so it's wonderful, and I think, and and going just kind of coming back to this before we wrap this up, I feel like what makes this production so special is we've all aged with friends, with career, with family, with spouses, or with children. We've all had some sort of relationship in one of those ways, and things have changed. And isn't it interesting to see what that would look like if you looked back on your life five years ago, ten years ago? 15 years ago, what would you have changed? What would you have done differently? What happened? And merrily we roll along, but we're rolling backwards. It's a, it's wonderful. The concept of the original play, the concept of this, and this is just a fresh revival of it that is working. And I'm just so happy. And like I said earlier, I don't cry a ton at shows. I do sometimes. I tear up sometimes. It just depends on the show. Um, this, I was just really, the tears were flowing through. I was really moved by the end of this. And I just find it to be tragic in the way at the end, even though it's beautiful. It's just kind of sad for me. I don't know, but I, I love the beauty of it. And I don't, and not many people write like Stephen Sondheim and George Firth did with this. So he, at least, 
He at least cries once a year. At <laughs> some a, show. Once a There's season. There's always a show in a season I cry at for many reasons, but yes. yes. When I start hearing the sniffles, I'm like, oh, it's coming. Yeah, it's usually, <laughs> and, and to me, it's sometimes either on the end of Act 1 or the end of Act 2. <laughs> but, yeah. So. Oh, amazing. Uh, oh my gosh, we're almost out of time. I can keep talking about this all day. This was so, uh, so wonderful. But let's wrap this up a little bit. Yes, let's give us the quick one, two, three on why people should go see Merrily We Roll Along and our thoughts. I'll go first. Um, Everyone should go see this because it is my favorite Sondheim show and I'm telling you to go see it. But um, I, I really think that this is a great story for people to see. I think it's a big reflection piece for people as well. When you go and you look at something like this, how many times are we saying, oh, how did that happen? Or how did this go? How did we get here? And you don't do enough analyzing of your past to see mm-hmm. how you got to today in the future. And I think that's the beauty of what Merrily We Roll Along really brings. So I highly, highly, highly recommend it. It's the first major revival of this classic show. The audiences are loving it. If you're seeing that it's like wildly sold out, which I know it is, book a ticket three or four months in advance on a random day just to get the ticket. You know, it's wonderful. All three of them are working so hard up there. The ensemble, I, like I said, I'm blown away by Maria Friedman's direction of this. And there's such a heart here. And I love the way this is told. It's a fresh, clean way. And it's a classic. It's a classic. I hope more people do this show. Uh, we don't just harp on the original being a flop because this is just such a different production. of it. And it's Sondheim. And I'll always appreciate a Sondheim revival. I think we're always going to see Sondheim revivals. Always. And I think we'll always see this too. So it's a wonderful, wonderful piece. I really, really enjoyed it. And definitely go check it out at the Hudson Theater. It is only playing until, I want to say, July 2024. So you only have a few more months. Which was an extension. Mm-hmm. It was. Mm-hmm. Uh, I will make a bold statement here, though. I... Do you think we finally can take Merrily We Roll Along out of the flop musicals, John? Mm-hmm. Totally. I don't think we should be calling it a flop anymore because overall the musical is great. And with very successful productions running of this, I don't think it's a flop musical. Anymore. Right. Right. And I love seeing new generations appreciating it too. It's yes. wonderful. So. <laughs> Well, that does wrap up our discussion on the episode today of Merrily Roll Along. We hope you enjoyed our deep dive into the show. Don't forget, we want to hear from you. Continue the conversation with us on Instagram and TikTok at Half Hour Podcast and let us know your thoughts on Merrily We Roll Along. If you enjoyed our show, please leave us a review. Your feedback helps us bring more theater to you. And remember, you can listen to our past episodes and stay tuned for some upcoming ones as well. Yes, until next time, I'm Jeff. And I'm Richie saying ta-ta for now. Bye. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.